When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. There's no better feeling than a personal win, and the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast, brought to you by the team behind BikeRadar.com, Cycling Plus, and MBUK magazines. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe. And if you can do so, leave us a rating on your podcast provider of choice. It really helps us reach other cyclists like you. Hello, and welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast. I'm Ashley Quinlan, Senior Road Technical Editor here for all things road and gravel, and I'm joined today by fellow Senior Technical Editor Warren Rossiter and Tom Law, our mountain bike video presenter. That is correct, Tom, isn't it? It is correct, Ash. Yeah, you've got that right. Good stuff, good stuff. I, I know we work together in the office, but because I deal in drop bars only, and you're all about the mountain bike side of things, I, uh, I feel like... Uh, we don't talk enough, so we should. We should. We should really we, get to have a little crossover, yeah. But we should, uh, yeah, we should do more stuff. Absolutely. Anyway, how are we both? Let's start with you, Tom. Yeah, I'm good, thanks, Ash. Yeah, been for a little, little nice pedal this morning because it's a nice sunny morning here in the Midlands. So yeah, I'm uh, yeah all ready and raring to go for the rest of the day now. That's really embarrassing because I thought you lived in Wales. I am nomadic. I live here, there, and everywhere. Oh, like a, like a true mountain biker, I'm assuming. Yeah, I'm not quite van life in it like uh, like Nick or Max, but uh, yeah, I'm just, yeah, n- nomadic is definitely the way that I live life at the minute. <laughs> Fair enough. How are you, Warren? I'm very good, thanks. Yeah, again, uh, keeping busy. I've, uh, I haven't been out for a pedal yet today, but hoping to straight after this. I have been for a two-hour dog walk, um, as is my usual start to the day. Currently running through, I've got a few gravel bikes on the go at the minute, Um which it seems to be never-ending for me at the moment. Um, I'm wrapping up the final touches on my full SRAM Force Access review and also working on a Ortega Di2 versus Force Access piece at the minute. So, um, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stir the debate even more with the SRAM versus Shimano rivalry. 
Well, stay tuned for that. It sounds like uh, there's it's quite a competitive uh, head-to-head, that one. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to hearing your thoughts on it. Um, yeah, I'm looking, yeah. looking forward to finalising them. <laughs> Good. Do they keep changing by any chance? <laughs> yeah. uh, sort of, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're both brilliant. I mean, you know, it's, that's as much so I can really say. So, but... Um, Fair enough. I mean, I wish I could go out for a ride today, but I've got a, a, I've got, I'm coming down with a bit of a sore throat myself. So I thought I've got an event on Sunday, so I'm just saving myself for that. Um, and then I'll be kicking off into a new my ne- next uh, bike test myself. So things are, things are definitely ramping up. They, uh, they never seem to relax, do they? We come out the back end of bike of the year, and suddenly uh, things get even more busy. And you think, how can that possibly happen? But there we are. Now, uh, just before we get stuck into what we're going to talk about today, you might be able to tell that we're not in our usual studio. So from the outset, just want to say that um, we apologise if there's any extra creaking or squeaking. Warren and I are sat on some very noisy chairs. Um, and if it, you know you can hear some uh, background noise, then uh, apologies uh, from the outset. But today, in this edition, we're going to take a fun but kind of serious look sort of, um, at the cycling kit that Warren, mainly, would really rather didn't exist at all. The seven sins of cycling kit, uh, one might call it. Now, uh, Warren, this was uh, your idea, I believe, and you uh, sent, sent across a list before we uh, before we uh, sort of dialed into this chat. And uh, yeah, you've got some interesting ones in there. Shall we, uh, shall we kick it off with uh, number one, do you think? Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, my first one, and this is like a um... Oh, it feels like a an easy one to knock down, as it were. And it's it's helmet covers. You know, cyclists, we get a bad rap at the best of the time. So as let's face it, we're all riding around in skin tight clothing when the rest of the world's pretty demure. But when you get into the poor weather, you just don't put on what's essentially a shower cap over the top of your helmet. You look ridiculous, you know. And I don't believe that a waterproof cover on your head does anything but channel water down the back of your neck and make your head heat up. It's a good point. It does definitely compromise your ventilation. And if you worry about getting hot on a, on a, whether you're doing it for a commute or you're, you're out on a sort of a road ride like you and I tend to do, Warren, I guess, you know, you're going to get, you know, pretty sweaty under, under a kind of shower cap situation. Uh, Tom, does this ever happen in mountain biking? Not helmet covers as such, but one thing being a former bike shop rat that we used to get all the time is people coming in and asking, do you sell saddle covers? He's like, oh, I find my saddle really uncomfortable. Do you sell saddle covers? I'm like, no, they're the worst thing ever. So it's it's offered a slight tangent, but yeah, just no, just don't don't buy a saddle cover. Just buy a more comfortable saddle. So we're talking about covers here in general, aren't we? I mean, I, I I've got a, a few a few waterproof covers for my saddle, uh, but what uh, what I do at least I'm from from previous life, but what I what I do notice that I see a lot of people riding around with them still on their bike. So you've kept your saddle dry, but the whole point of it is to keep your saddle dry and then take them off. So you ride them and keep your bottom dry. But you know people just tend to leave them on and then you ride around and just keep them on anyway. So so what's the point of having it there in the first place? So, yeah. You still just get a wet bottom anyway. You do. But back to helmet covers, though. You do get sort of aero covers. I know Laser creates some sort of aero-style covers for their for their helmets. So, you know, maybe you can have like sort of both and still get, from an enthusiast perspective, this is, maybe you can get sort of an aero benefit from putting covers on sort of that. I think their Genesis helmet at the moment takes one where you can put it on top and uh, essentially turn your helmet into something of an aero helmet. Uh, Warren, yeah, is that I mean, something that you, well, you, that, you, you can see a use for that? Yeah, I mean, what I'm talking about really is like, you know, 
basically an elasticated Gore-Tex bag that you drag over the top and look faintly ridiculous. Now, the laser cover, I mean, you know, I, I was around when laser, you know, originally launched that, and there was like, oh, yeah, it's the AeroShell, the AeroShell for the Z1 and the Genesis, and blah, blah, blah. And I just went, that's a rain cover, isn't it? You know? <laughs> it's literally... Well, it's definitely it's a benefit. Yeah. Yeah, it's the only. I mean, only time I use mine is in the winter. It's like, oh, it's raining or it's really cold. I'll, I'll clip that on. I, I never really sort of. You know, the, the aero benefit has never really made that much sense, really, to me, as it were. You know. I'll dive yeah. you know, in Simon von Bromley and see what he thinks of it. But go on, you were saying. Yeah, well, yeah, but you know, this kind of takes me on to my. I'm, I'm just going to slightly rearrange the order because you know, Tom coming in and talking about ridiculous saddle covers, etc. And. Um, it's one of my other particular bugbears, and that's that's cycling's excess plastic. There is just so much of it, you know. Cleat covers, really, you know. How, how much walking do you actually do? Or rear spoke protectors—they come on every single bike. They do no good job at all, um, and they, you know, it's just some injection molded crud we don't need. Whenever you buy a light or a GPS or or anything that you clip onto your bike, why does it come with thirty different options of band-on clip or? you know, etc. Why don't they just sell you one light and you go, well, it's got to go on that bike and they go, well, you need this fitting. I've got drawers in my garage that are just full of excess random pieces of plastic that you've got no idea what to do with them. Never going to use them again. You know, it's just absolute waste. Then you've got, you know, valve caps. That's the point. The ridiculous valve caps of protect plastic. your valves. Oh, really? <laughs> the ridiculous, <laughs> amount, ridiculous amounts of plastic packaging that stuff designed to live outside comes packaged in what is it being protected from you know it's it's you know you know cycling is supposed to be like it's really green pastime and eco-friendly sport but you'd never guess from the amount of excess plastic detritus that that just comes with everything on on the packaging front i have to say i've noticed recently that brands are starting sort of wake up to having uh, plastic free packaging uh, a lot of um a lot of stuff that i'm receiving you know we receive in the office these days comes in just sort of recycled cardboard boxes now which which i appreciate oh but, yes definitely you know, getting, definitely definitely getting better definitely getting better and i don't want to you know i'm going to blow our own trumpet here for the minute i got my copy of the latest issue of cycling plus recently the bike of the year issue um it comes in a paper bag that looks absolutely amazing you can it's got free socks in it and those socks are in a paper envelope and I, saw that, I went that's amazing they're not in a plastic bag which is so I'm good. I'm glad to see that our uh, production people are, uh, are are looking into these sorts of things. I just hope you know everybody else follows too. Yeah, um, Tom, what's your view on this? I'd, I'd imagine you know trails and things get sort of covered in bits of plastic and valve caps and that get left behind, and you know even tubes, for example, get left behind. Not quite plastic, but you see where I'm getting at. Oh yeah, totally. And like you know, even in just out in the woods this morning, obviously, you know, you share them with, with walkers. So it's not just exclusive to, to cycling, but you'll find, you know, all sorts of stuff, you know, but yeah, you'll see inner tubes left on the trail. I even found one once that was left literally on the landing of a jump, which was very nice. So mm-hmm. whoever left that on, on that, that was, that was very <laughs> kind of you. That would have been brilliant if that had wrapped around my front wheel and thrown me around over the handlebars. So you, yeah, you see a, a lot of tubes left about, um, energy gel wrappers left about in the woods as well you know people that are just you know throw either you know just literally throwing them away or, or they fall out of a, a, a pocket or a, a you know rock sack or something like that so and incredibly... they're kind of a combination of like foil and plastic aren't they as well we think of them as yeah, kind of being exactly. foil but actually they've got a lot of plastic wrapped around them somewhere or where yeah exactly that's it so they're, they're certainly not going to be going anywhere anytime soon 
Uh, but I think don't Trek actually have a, a patent, you know, a shout out to to somebody that's doing some some good in the world. Trek have a patent, I think, on their uh, plastic free bike packaging or or something like that. I seem to remember. So I agree with Waz. People are definitely getting better. Um, you know, Hope is another brand that I know from my shop days. You know, seeing the evolution of their packaging from plastic bags, it's all now pretty much entirely. You know, sort of paper based, you know, which is really, really nice to see PTs and other brands that are using fully recycled sort of packaging with all their sort of stuff. Their new brushes, actually, like their cleaning brushes are not only really good, but again, they're made from completely recycled materials. So a lot of brands doing a lot more to protect the environment, which is always nice to see. But uh, work to do was, yeah? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. You know, the packaging is one thing, but, you know, my, my thing with accessories that come with, you know, every every option of fitting. I can't see that it's more cost effective to do it that way rather than just provide every bike shop with a selection of fittings. So you just buy the unit and it's going on that. Here's your fitting. Not here's a bag full of fittings that you're, you know, most people will just, I mean, how, how do you even recycle it? You know, it's all, most of it's hard plastics. You know, you can't put it in your plastic recycling. And it's a bit of a weird trip to take to a tip to, to get rid of a few, a cup full of plastic bits, as it were. So... Well, we don't want to go into landfill, do we? So, uh, yeah, no, plenty of work exactly. to be done. So, Warren, I'll now pull you on to, uh, well, uh, your previous point, as it is on my list, but we'll go there anyway, for showerproof jackets, or so-called showerproof jackets. Now, let rip. What's the problem with these? Okay, well, if you live in the Northern Hemisphere and the north of that, like we do, the chances are you're going to be riding in changeable weather. The last thing I need in my life is a jacket that's not substantial enough to keep me warm, Neither does it protect me in any way from the elements. It's essentially like a gossamer thin layer of translucent wet nonsense. It just deserves to be consigned to history as a clothing anomaly that just does nothing to further the human experience. There are plenty of really good lightweight waterproofs, proper waterproofs out there. Although, you know, RIP Shake Dry and Hello, again, Gore-Tex Active, for instance. You know, the, the showerproof jacket is just ridiculously unnecessary. I don't know what you guys think. I think... I think if I if I'm going out and I know I'm going to be showery conditions, I want to know that I'm going to be dry. That's the whole point, right? Um, I'm not. I don't want to be sort of have that boil in the bag situation going on. And although we've moved on from say ten years ago, where you just got that with every other jacket, it still does come up every now and then where breathability just isn't there. So having those higher tech and higher spec waterproof jackets that you know have higher water column ratings and can sort of i think the word is transpose that water outwards so that you stay drier inside um you know is de- are definitely worth their weight in gold but there is no doubt at all that they are still incredibly expensive and of course the industry is going through a bit of a, a challenge will go through a challenging time as time goes on at the moment where uh, i think it's pfcs and those, those um, petrofluorocarbons um are being removed from fabrics and so what you're going to find is that you know, jackets are simply not going to be as good as they as they were maybe two or three years ago. Um, though, and the new technologies that come in are going to need to be developed in order to sort of start meeting that same level of performance that we've seen. That takes research, that takes development, and therefore it's likely that that's going to hit people in you know in their wallets essentially, from my point of view anyway. So, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Ha- having a showerproof jacket, a so-called showerproof jacket that gives you just a tiny bit of protection and a tiny bit of breathability, kind of doesn't seem to achieve very much at all. Um, I, I'd like to know the, the opinion of mountain bikers. You know, mountain bikers, you know this because you're not only dealing with rain, you're dealing with mud. 
and also it's um it's it's really hard hard efforts right like we, you know Warren and I will spin around kind of like at a steady constant effort but mountain bikers tend to spike their effort a lot more so you're going to get very hot very quickly right yeah exactly so I've been quite a late convert to Gore-Tex sort of stuff in the last sort of four or five years um but for me it's it, it is a game changer it's not cheap um you know like I'm going to be riding in a couple of weeks um, a bike from Caliber, which will cost less than probably what I will be wearing. But at the same time, it will be a lot more enjoyable than if I was riding a £10,000 bike in the rain in Scotland in clothing that wasn't up to the task. So, yeah, absolutely. The, the technology is there. Like I, say, I mean, it's a shame that Shake Drive probably wasn't quite robust enough for mountain bike use. I know some people were brave enough to risk it, but when you're spending 250 quid on a jacket, you don't want it snagging on, uh, you know, sort of any any brambles or anything like that. So I've mainly stuck to Gore-Tex um, Active and, and Pro lines. But when I got a pair of seven mesh waterproof Gore-Tex trousers for riding in winter, total game changer. I'd never been so comfortable, dry, warm. Just I basically live. I've lived in them for the past three years, and I'm devastated that I've actually managed to kill them now. Because they, they, they were a game changer and I don't like to use that term very often. But yeah, for me, like I say, going to jackets was one level, but a set of, you know, good quality waterproof trousers for a mountain biker in winter. Yeah, you can't beat them in, in my opinion. I know that's a controversial thing to some people in, in mountain bike circles. I won't mention any names. But yeah, for me, I would much rather, you know, sort of go through that because the argument is, is that they're not, the fabrics aren't good enough to sweat, particularly for mountain biking. They're not going to evaporate that sweat as well as you're going to get wet from the weather. So the argument is, is that you'll you'll get wet anyway, regardless of what you're wearing. It just depends on whether you're wet from your sweat or wet from precipitation or, you know, stuff coming up from the trail. But for me, I think even as someone that runs quite warm, I'd still rather have something that's that's fully waterproof just to keep the elements at bay. And Warren, you mentioned uh, staying warm there as well. Um, I, I imagine in, in the wintertime, sometimes you need a bit of more thermal capability from your jacket. Showerproof jacket's not going to cut you there as well? No, absolutely not. I mean, I think my, my main issue with the showerproof jacket is that they're usually at a price where you think, oh, wow, that's that. I bet that's really good value. And it's just such a false economy because they, they just wet out so quickly. They stick to you. you. You know, you get colder, you get clammy. And everything you know and, and besides the, the fact that most of them do go that a bit translucent, since you end up looking like you're you're having an impromptu wet t-shirt competition it's just there's such a false economy with a jacket that is neither this nor that you know i would say invest in a really good waterproof when the weather's really bad and uh, and especially if you're if you know if you're riding road or, or whatever um a you know something like um a perfetto or you know the kind of gabba style jerseys because you don't have to be paying through the nose for you know Castelli version and that there are plenty of other much more affordable options that are using very very similar te- you know technical fabrics you know and you Same get a bit of thermal water. oh yeah yeah you're getting you know you're getting really good thermal protection and you're getting good enough for um any shower you know without the need for a jacket you know so i think uh, i i'd rather buy one really good item than end up buying lots of really bad ones to try and do the same job yeah buy cheap buy twice 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can say from experience as well that I've tested a number of sort of cheap to mid-range so-called showerproof or still breathable shell jackets, if you like, over the years. Um, and I've, I've found also that they don't tend to last as long as well. The seams never seem to be as well stitched together. It's not always the case. Uh, but, you know, when you're paying less money as well, you tend not to get quite as high quality. Now, that doesn't mean to say that spending loads of money is a guarantee of quality um, or the way they've been put together. But at least, you know, it. the trend would seem to be, to me at least, that if you do spend... A little bit more you get that much more for your money and a lot more life especially if you look after them you know shake dry jackets all you need to do um, essentially is rinse them off well um, and make sure they're dried properly you know you don't need to actually treat them with anything although you can if you wish but i don't believe gore actually says that you should but the point is that you know you spend a little bit more you actually get a little bit more for your money and it's a probably a good place to invest something that's definitely yeah absolutely agree with that Right then, moving on then to, and this will, uh, I'm sure if anyone listening to this has an opinion on this, I'm sure you may do, I think it features in like the so-called cycling rules that I like to, I pity people on, but you know, team kits, Warren, you've enlisted team kits here in the kit you'd like to see uh, dropped, give us your reasons why, and try <sighs> not to make it so I have to bleep it out, <laughs> I don't have to censor you. I, I, yeah, I do get quite animated about this one. I, I fundamentally don't understand why anybody would pay for the privilege to advertise an oppressive foreign regime, a petrochemical polluter, or a betting company. And to be honest, you're never going to look like a pro when you're pottering along, along on the A426 just outside of Littleworth. You know, just buy a kit that looks good. It's, uh, it, you know, team kit dates impossibly quickly, and you're, you're literally a billboard for a load of nonsense that means nothing to cycling. You know, I just find it, um, it offends my sense of aesthetics <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and it, offends, it offends my sense of social justice as well. So, yeah, team kits, just no, absolutely not. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. I, I, I do, I won't say whether I totally agree with you or disagree with you at this point, but I do, I did come across a rider at a cafe stop last weekend who was wearing team um, a team kit that should remain nameless for now otherwise I, I might get sued uh, but they were wearing a team kit and I thought to myself uh, I, I can't I don't know whether you are supporting the rider that wears that kit or you are supporting the the company that was is emblazoned or one of the companies that was emblazoned ac- across the front of it and it made me think would I want to sort of be doing that I mean you know would I want to be wearing that and, I, and the answer is probably no but you know do, it's I, I suppose showing your support for a team that you know that rides in a certain way that you would you would um, 
that you sort of enjoy watching and so you know I, I know many people support say Sudal Quickstep for example they've got a long storied history of sort of classic racing and success and and, and they uh, they've got a, a, a quite a wide fan base but you know or if you've got a specific rider that you you, you support and you you want to kind of show that support you know maybe there's a case for that uh, what do you think Tom? It's less of a thing in, in mountain bike circles obviously but yeah certainly from a road point of view I, I don't really understand it you know, I mean, I guess it's kind of similar to, you know, wearing like, I mean, I won't wear a football shirt unless I'm going to the football. But obviously some people will wear football shirts or they'll wear rugby shirts. But I suppose the difference is, is that with those, there might only be one or two sponsors on there, not plastered on them, you know, like like anything else. Or, or Formula One, you know, like people will wear, you know, a, a Mercedes or a Red Bull, you know, sort of F1 t-shirt or what have you yeah exactly although or they'll wear a cap you know it's it's one of those that like if you're going to do it from a casual point of view and it's not just going to be completely plastered with xyz sponsors like a lot of road team jerseys are then yeah i'm, I'm not not so sure for actual riding if you're on a team like my old man is then that's that's different you know he wears his team kit because he is on an actual team um but yeah, for, for Joe Public riding around in your, you know, as as unnamed sponsored thing, yeah, no, I'm not not so keen on that. Yeah, I don't have a problem with people wearing a, their own team kit. Obviously, that's you know, or your own club kit or, or anything like that. And the kind of the, the football, sport, F1, or whatever analogies, sort of there. But that's about being a fan. You you know, if you're, you know, you don't get into your. You know, your Nomex fire suit to drive your box or Astra down to Morrison's, do you? You, you know. And if you're playing football, you won't be wearing, you know, Mo Salah's shirt because you think you'd probably be on a team and you'd be wearing your team shirt. You know, they are they are fan accessories, which is fine. You know, if you're going to watch a race, show the flag of your you know, your team's colours and everything. I just don't really get it when you're, you know, when you're a co-participant. To, but it's the big for me. It's the bigger. It's the bigger question of that. Um, there's lots of money in cycling. I just don't should. This don't think should be there. I think we. I think we need a, a higher moral standard. But then I think that most sport, to be honest. Let's uh, move it on to something a little bit less um, controversial, shall we say, um, and move it back to uh, pointless lightweight bolts. Warren, hit me. Yeah. What's this, this all about? Is, I mean, there was. You know, I, I've been around long enough that we had a whole kind of ridiculous weight weenies thing going on. Um, in road cycling especially everybody was looking to try and save weight everywhere you know and to be honest I, in, I was party to that um, I, I bought into that thing but in, in hindsight and now nobody needs lightweight alloy bolt kits you know they'll save you approximately five grams on your bike for the price of a really decent night out um, and it was at the same time it just makes every adjustment on your bike a kind of Russian roulette of rounding out the head on that ridiculous anodized hex bolt if your aim is to lose such a small amount of weight for such a high price, you really need to take a long look at yourself. Well, Tom, what do you think? Well, as it turns out, I actually might need to take a long, hard look at myself. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. I haven't, I haven't gone down the alloy bolt route, but my own personal bike is festooned with quite a lot of titanium bolts. Admittedly, only because they're oil slick coloured and it went with a few other oil slick bits and pieces that i have on the bike um yeah the alloy bolts thing i don't really get or i've even seen people sort of like replacing their bottle cage bolts if they're not using them with like literally like the little plastic like nub things that you can get 
So, yeah, from a weight point of view, I don't get it. From an aesthetic point of view, that's the only reason I've done it, because the stem that they're mounted on, for example, is nearly 200 grams, which is quite hefty for a stem. So saving four grams, you know, from switching from the steel box they came with to titanium was not going to make an ounce of difference. It looks very pretty, but that's literally all, all the reason for it. Yeah, from a weight point of view. Likewise, I've, I've been there, done that in my XC days, you know, where you're literally chasing out any sort of gram that you can. But like I say, even at a top level, I don't, I don't really think there's any need for it, really. I wonder if, I've, I've always thought that um, it, when you're looking at lightweight componentry, I wonder if it's because it's, it's immediately measurable. You can, although it's a lot of money to spend, and Warren's absolutely right on that, I think I do agree, you can see that your bike is lighter. And that's a nice thing to sort of know. And psychologically, that makes a difference. You know, if you know you've got a really light bike, I mean, I, I, every time I turn up to a local club ride uh, back home, and someone picks up the bike, the test bike I might be riding, if it happens to be sort of sub, I don't know, eight kilos, I always, always get people picking it up thinking, oh, that's really light, isn't it? You know, and that's eight kilos, let alone seven or six, you know, on a road bike, or approaching six at least. And, you know, it, and the reality is, and our resident aero fan, Simon Von Bromley, would definitely agree with me on this, and that, you know, actually it's probably not the most... It's not uh, going to dictate how fast you ride or how easy a ride would be over the course of a longer ride as much as aero performance might, for example. Like you could sacrifice 500 grams for the sake and, you know, have deeper wheels, for example, and actually find that you will go faster over that ride in most cases. So, you know, it's a false economy. It's another one of those false economies, isn't it? Looking for those tiny, tiny gains. And you have to ask yourself whether it's actually worth it or not. If you're, I suppose if your object, you know, your objective is money, no object, I just want the lightest, the best, the fastest, and I, or, you know, from my point of view, and that's what I want to ride, then okay, then, you know, horses for courses. But I think if you're looking for a meaningful performance gain, maybe that's the point, is that it, perhaps you, you could put your money elsewhere or make smart, you know, maybe make smarter purchase decisions than trying to save four grams on a set of you know nice stem bolts and to the point as well around sort of rounding them out as well you know we do we all shove our multi-tools into these things to just and just give them a quick time don't we we don't all walk around with say torque wrenches and you know the high quality bits that you need to put into those sort of softened uh very lightweight bolts um so yeah it's i, I have to agree with you warren i do in, i think here I think you're right, Ash, as well, when you say it's it's a measurable thing because, like I say, you could put, you know, a more aero handlebar, a set of aero wheels on, but unless you're in a wind tunnel, you you can't get a figure on that. You can't change from one set of wheels to another and go, oh, well, these wheels are this much, you know, unless the manufacturer's done it for you, which I know some do, you can't say, oh, well, I've, you know, saved this without actually going into a wind tunnel and, and having it tested, for example. So it, it's all in theory, whereas weight is like, oh, well, I've saved 80 grams. It's a definitive number. You can put a number on what perform, you know, supposed performance or saving that you've gained. With, with aero stuff, it's a little bit harder to actually get an empirical, you know, sort of number on it that will say, yes, I've made my bike better. 
sure. And, you know, we're, we're, we're constantly saying, you know, something feels faster when we review our products as well, rather than it definitely is faster because, you know, I can ride a local climb here or a local flat section here at the same power numbers on, on any given day. But the conditions change from one moment to the next. So it could be that the wind turns around in the time that I'm there or it just gets a little bit easier. And you find that actually what should be the, what is actually technically the slowest option turns out to be you know the light option actually turns out to be slow because you're actually going into a bit more of a you know a challenging wind conditions in the real world never like to play ball unfortunately so i suppose as you say there is that sort of safety in knowing that you have physically saved something so you think the chances are that you are going to actually be saving your speed any other comments warren um i mean i would say i mean just to semi-agree with tom i i don't mind if you're changing bolts and things on your bike for aesthetic reasons to make it all tie in and make it look nice it's just you know the false economy again of buying super lightweight bits that just aren't really up to the job obviously titanium is a, is a good hard metal you know there are other challenges with titanium so you don't it, you know especially if you put it into like aluminium or other metals it, it can can bind and never come loose so you need to be really careful about when you're fitting them and everything but it's, you know making you personalizing your bike and making it look you know brilliant and different is is fabulous you know i've got a I've got a bike within my my fast collection, a, you know, a, a stalk that I built many years ago, and literally every part, you know, the the frame's green, and literally every part on that bike is green anodized. And it took me years to get all those bits together, and the reason I wanted it is because I just wanted it to look that way. You know, it was it took me so long to actually do that. By the time I finished it, it was out of date, and it was a, a huge, great big testament to hubris. Um, but but it looks fabulous, even if I don't ride it that much anymore. Let's move on. Um, we don't need to talk about Warren's garage. There's another podcast on how many bikes you've got in your garage, Warren. I'm sure there is. If this all scrolls back, so I'll leave that one for that. But um, next point that you uh, you you wish would uh, sort of see wouldn't see the light of day again. Although I don't think you're going to get your wish with this one, is one piece bars and stems. Well, you know the theory of making a one piece design that looks good and there's so much more aero than a standard bar and stem is a good one. And now with, you know, fully integrated routing on, on bikes too, bikes never look so clean, so, you know, so slippery and just fabulous looking. The problem is that finding that ideal combination of stem length, stem length and bar width combined into one product is a lot harder than you think, you know. And what if you change your mind? What if you want to experiment? You know, some people want to go stupidly narrow to gain aero and lose fun. Yeah, that's their prerogative. But with a one-piece bar, you can't. You know, uh, I actually thought Cannondale cracked this on, on the last generation of Super 6 Evo and System 6 with they did the knot bar and the stem. It was a combination that had all the advantages of a one-piece system. But thanks to our, like a clever cradle design where the bar rested on top of the stem and bolted through, um, they still came as separate parts. So you could buy different bar widths and different stem lengths. But what have they done on the new Evo? They've made a one-piece bar in co- collaboration with Momo. I'm sorry, it's just not as usable. It, it, to me, it's a regressive step. You know, there are brands that, that have tried to address this. You know, Colnago on the C68 offer such a ridiculously wide range of sizes and, and lengths, etc. that, yeah, with that bike, you will. But with that bike, you're, you know, minimum price, you're talking five figures. It, it, that, that one piece is so, it, 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 it's so kind of price orientated still. You know, there aren't any cheap one piece bars and stems around. That's true. And when they come on, when they come on a standard bike, you get a standard size. There's no option to switch. So it's it's. I think it it, it takes. It, it ch- takes personalization out of the game, and I think that's you know that's a bad thing. 
I, I wonder if you know brands that it could be argued that brands are sort of trying to drive people to stay within the ecosystem of of their bike. So you you, you know you know you you have a bike. It needs to fit. It's got a proprietary headset system, so you have to fit this one-piece bar stem onto it, and you're limited by the options that are given to you. Now, let's assume for a moment that those options do allow you to tweak and modify how you want to ride and fit, and, and they all fit you, and that's great. You're still having to spend that money in order to buy another one to replace it from time to time and go back and forth if you happen to want to keep two. It seems to me that it, it's been that there's an opportunity there for for brands to potentially to push. Uh, margins by keeping you in an expensive proprietary system yeah i mean you know the the simple the simplest fix would be that if you are a brand selling a bike that comes with a one-piece bar and stem you don't sell that bike to somebody unless they've been fitted for it because then you're not going out and spending serious amount of money on a you know a top-end road bike you're getting it and going these bars are too wide for me these bars are too narrow for me this feels too short you know i i think there should be a, a you know a caveat on when you're making a fully integrated cockpit, it has to fully integrate with the rider, not just the bike. Yeah, the, I think I think you know there are some brands do this better than others. Some brands will sell you a, a standard stock size uh, one piece bar stem that goes with the with the frame size that you bought, and then to have a, a different one if you know you need that, and if you've got that knowledge, then you've got to spend extra in order to buy that extra part. Whereas others will allow you to customize. It from from the ground up from the start now the extreme example of that is the uh, it's actually my performance bike of the year the nv melee which you can read about all on bikeradar.com right now where you buy the frame set kit so it's a slightly different uh, setup than buying a full bike but you buy the frame set kit but they offer you all of the options of the nv ses front end and seat post um, you can have it in line you can have that um, with a 20, uh, 15 mil, 20 mil setback. Um, you can have any kind of width. You can range from, say, 38 mil wide bars all the way out to uh, 46, I believe, um, which is always gravel wide. At the same time, the caveat here is that that's a two-piece setup. Uh, but there are plenty of brands out there that offer you all these different sizes, but it's not always obvious that you can actually customise and change them. And sometimes it comes down to just having a relationship with your with your dealer or your shop and say, look, I know I'll fit that bike and that frame, but I just need the stem to be a bit shorter and the bars to be a bit narrower, wider. And then it really depends on what's been made available to that to that brand if they can swap them out or, you know, no extra charge. Whether you actually do have to pay a good two hundred, three hundred, four hundred pounds for a new setup, it, I'm afraid it's uh, there isn't one one rule, and I think that's probably the shame here. Yeah, and I think was his point that he made earlier on, like light fittings, for example, like you could almost have that with you know, the, the bars and stuff, you know, if you're going to insist on having a one-piece bar and stem, sell the bike without a bar and stem as standard when somebody buys a bike because they're, they're, they're not cheap, these one-piece bar and stems or the bikes that they're coming on are not cheap. So you're either going to get one of two people that are likely to buy that sort of bike, somebody that knows, you know, like you guys, if you, you didn't work in the industry, would would know, right, okay, then I'm going to need probably this stem length and this bar width. So when I buy this bike, I'm going to order it with that bar and stem length. And then it's like, right, okay, you're sorted. Or conversely, it's going to be somebody that has potentially a lot of money that, you know, if they need to buy another 200 quid bar, they're not going to be too fussed about that. You know, it's going to be a drop in the water to them and, and it doesn't matter if they have to to test it. So I, I think that's a way that, you know, you could work around it, you know, is, is basically selling the bikes without a bar and stem standard and giving the customer the choice 
to, to go for it. And sadly, it is something that's starting to crop up in, in mountain biking more and more, which which is really upsetting for me because, you know, bar roll, while it's an important thing for road cycling on, on a mountain bike, it's even more of a, a personalization sort of thing, you know, because I know some of the other guys, you know, like Rob and, and Alex, they have their bars rolled so much further forward than, than I would do. And if we've got a one-piece bar and stem, you know, you can't change that. It's it's all integrated in, into one piece and, you know, it, it's not going to work for me. It's not going to work for either of those guys either. So, yeah, it's not, not a trend that, that I'm keen on. I was going to ask, um, how, how prevalent is it in mountain biking? I mean, I, my perception of it is that you tend to get two pieces still, but are we starting to see more one-piece stuff in mountain biking? Yeah, on, on higher-end bikes, yeah, it started out mainly in, in the XC world, uh, but it's even going into you know the, the longer travel, Enduro, and even Scott a number of years ago, and I think they still do on their Gambler, have a one-piece bar and stem direct mount setup for their dual crown downhill bike which to me seems even more ridiculous, you know, because the the bike's like 37, 38 pounds, you know, 16, 17 kilos, saving weight on a one-piece bar and stem and compromising the adjustability when, you know, when you're throwing yourself down some hideously steep and rough trails, you want to feel comfortable on the bike and you want to make sure that everything is precisely where you want it. So on that side of things, I was pretty gobsmacked when I first saw that. So it's definitely starting to creep in. Again, it's it's at that high end, you know, so it's it's fairly unlikely you're going to come across one unless you are spending, you know, five figures on a mountain bike. But still, they're becoming more and more prevalent, you know, just like headset cable routes and stuff like that. And it's, yeah, I'm not a fan at all. Watch this space. Mm, right. Definitely. Point. Point seven in our seven sins of uh, cycling, and Warren, I, I know that this was actually something that I uh, suggested to you, wasn't it? And uh, you seem to agree with me, which I'm very pleased about. Come on, aero head socks. Yeah, it's something we'd we'd both commented on and everything, but you know, um, it, it's sort of the next big thing for time trial riders. It looks like something between a, like a cross between a winter balaclava and fetish wear. And it's about as appropriate for cycling as both. You know, if you're that desperate, say fractions of a watt in drag, this may give you. Why not just go for a full body wax and get that full Mad Max Fury Road War Boys look? It, it it's a funny it's a funny one. I my issue with it is not that it offers you so little performance gain, um, or you know, if it offers you a bit of a performance gain and you believe in it, then that's fine. My issue with it is that looks so ridiculous my my partner came to call it a head condom uh when she saw it the giro riders riding it in the time trials that they're running in, in this year's event had on the telly and and we we and i just i thought i think that's the point isn't it if someone's looking at it thinking they look ridiculous or they think you know what i don't want to give that sport a go because the, the time trial you know cycling is bad enough with the, the amount of sort of kit one-upmanship that you get at races and time trials and so on and you think i can never compete with that and i just i think if aero headstocks start to become a thing where you you know you don't look particularly great um you know we're not exactly going to be advertising the sport in the best way to new newcomers and people who may want to give it a go i think i don't want to look like that 
I remember for a time when in a past life when I was swimming that, you know, boys never wanted to wear swimming hats, you know, because that was what girls wore at the time, you know, and you, you sort of got over that over, over time. But you still have some some people still have that. I don't want to wear one attitude. And the same applies here. I think it's like, why would you want to look that way when you just want to enjoy riding your bike and pushing yourself to your limit? You know, those that half a watt that you might be saving at let's be honest 50k an hour or 60k an hour is makes no difference to you at a lower level anyway but why would you use that as something to sort of advertise the sport to i just i just think it it doesn't do us any favors i mean it's a weird i mean i always find it strange as well that it, they do look ridiculous and everything and and there's a certain faction in road cycling especially where people can be vilified for having their wrong length socks and so to wear something that looks so patently ridiculous, I mean, you know, fair play to those people using them. I mean, they must have, like, you know, egos of steel. But um, it, it just, I, I, I don't see the, I don't see the performance gain being enough to justify, you know, just looking like that. It's just, oh, I think everybody just needs to calm down a little bit when it comes to aerodynamics. Possibly, you know, possibly. Just, just, just remember why we ride a bike, you know, it's fun. So Warren, from a performance perspective, myself from an aesthetic and advertising the sport to others perspective. Tom, where do you sit on this? Just don't look ridiculous perspective. You know, I think, you know, cycling is, it's not all that fashionable, is it? You know, at, at times, you know, so, you know, I mean, I often think, you know, you can have the all the gear, no idea look, and it just, you just look even, you know, you're just even stupider. So for me, it's it's purely from a, a fashion point of view. You know, just just don't do it to yourself. You know, have a bit of have a bit of dignity. You know, it's, you're not going to be you know saving yourself any any performance. Just making yourself look even more stupid. So no, definitely not one for me. Tom, yeah, on that score, where did you sort of stand on the um, on like many years ago downhill in dalliance with uh, skin suits? Yeah, it was an interesting one. I mean, it's funny you mentioned that because I was also thinking of back in the 90s when I sort of first started watching mountain biking as a kid when the downhill riders used to wear full-face helmets without visors. You know, like they would take they would take the visors off the helmets for, for aero benefits. You know, so, I mean, the thing is, like, it's getting almost back to that point now because a lot of the riders, they're wearing fox or troy lee or whatever else but it's not off the peg stuff it's all custom made for them and it, it is almost at that point now where you, you watch a lot of the downhill guys and they are now basically wearing what are in effect skin suits you know because all the clothing is is that tight um so and i think it kind of goes with you know, just just the the way that the the sport is going in that kind of sense is that people are getting a lot more serious. You know, it's there are still some people that will go out and you know sort of get smashed like PT and and Palmer did back in the day, but it is a lot more serious now in in the mountain bike world, particularly in in downhill. So um, so it it's not quite full on you know sort of skin suit sort of territory, but it's it's definitely getting that way. You know, there's there's some really tight fitting clothing in in that sort of sense. Um, obviously the XE boys are wearing Lycra like they, they always have done um, the, the Enduro guys wearing just general you know sort of MTB sort of clothing so there's definitely some extremes but yeah again I was never a big fan of the of the whole sort of skin suit sort of thing particularly 
you know, if you're wearing body armor underneath it, you know, like it really sort of hit a peak in the late noughties, you know, and arguably to this day, one of the greatest, I think, downhill runs in, in history, Sam Hill in, in Val de Sole. The, the speed the guy is carrying is, it's ludicrous. Even today, you know, it is out of this world how quick he's going. But he's wearing a skin suit and he's got big bulky knee pads on and he just looks stupid. You know, it's like it's literally the the coolest, most insane thing that I think I've ever seen in a downhill race run. And every time I watch it, I'm like, this is so cool. Why are you wearing a skin suit? But it's because that's what they did at Worlds at the time. So, um, so yeah, it's yeah ridiculous. We do suffer for our craft, don't we? We certainly do. Yeah, we definitely do. I think I'm going to wrap it up there. And I'm only going to wrap it up there because I know, Warren, you've got another four you could easily share quickly off the bat, but we're not going to do that. I'm going to leave it for another seven more cycling sins in the future. And we'll cover them then as well. And maybe we'll do another podcast on this kind of thing. Um, to, but- be, to be honest, I've, I've probably thought of half a dozen more just whilst we've been talking now. And I'm sure I could get more. You know, I've got, I'll go out for a nice calming ride or maybe just have a lie down. And I'm sure I'll come up with a few more. What, what a treat that that is to look forward to. <laughs> well, well, we'll look forward to that. But to our listeners, thank you very much for listening to this edition of the Bike Rider podcast. Uh, please don't forget to sub- subscribe if you haven't already. And please do leave a review wherever you get your podcast because that helps us reach more people. Um, if you have any questions or comments about what we've discussed today, I'm sure you do. I'm sure you do have your own opinions on them and we'd love to hear them as well. Genuinely, we'd really like to hear them. Please do email us at podcast at bikeradar.com. But otherwise, if everything's done for today, we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you've not done so already, please subscribe and share with your friends or leave us a rating if you've enjoyed this episode. 